Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Carol Werner. I'm the Executive Director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. We are glad to welcome you to this afternoon's briefing on the topic of can the United States achieve a low-carbon economy by 2050? As we know, there have been many discussions around carbon technologies, carbon pathways, carbon questions. What does this mean with regard to thinking about uh, uh, greenhouse, overall greenhouse emissions? Uh, what does it mean with regard to thinking about international uh, climate negotiations? What does it mean for the U.S. economy? What does it mean for business development? What does it mean with regard to uh, domestic and also global competitiveness? So while on the one hand there is much discussion in Washington and around the country around these re all sorts of related topics with regard to looking at, at energy, with regard to looking at our kinds of energy and policy discussions and uh, looking at what this means for the future direction of the country and indeed of the administration. At the same time, there has been enormous work that has gone on uh, across the country and across all sectors with regard to these important issues. There are also important trends that we are seeing domestically and indeed globally as we look at what has been happening as a result of, of companies at the private sector becoming ever more efficient, uh, ever more competitive, as we look at the results of uh, research, development, and deployment initiatives across this country, across the world, as we look at the growing investments among a number of nations in terms of their commitments with regard to uh, the need to address R&D and the feeling that it is a very important part of their future. And all of these issues are things that are important for us to be thinking about, to be asking questions about. And so this afternoon, we are very fortunate that uh, to have the uh, principles behind are involved in a couple important studies that were, uh, uh, were released last fall. Uh, to be here to discuss these particular studies. One was done uh, through the private sector called From Risk to Return, Investing in a Clean Energy Economy. The second one was done by the U.S. government and is called the United States Mid-Century Strategy for De Decarbonization. So we are going to hear a discussion uh, and presentations on these two reports uh, from Dr. Carl Hosker and Dr. Noah Kaufman as they discuss the pathways that are laid out, the options, the alternatives that are looked at, that are examined closely uh, within these two reports, the approaches made uh, and the kinds of alternatives that there are available. And of course, I think we always are surprised at how uh, new options and alternatives uh, do keep evolving as well. And I think you will find this to be a very provocative and helpful discussion as we look towards 
what are some of the ways, pathways forward, what can we kind of expect as we start to uh, dig into what kinds of options really are available, uh, what are the trends that we are seeing, and, um, and it gives you an opportunity to ask questions about, indeed, what might make sense for this country, and indeed, uh, our globe as our uh, global partners as we move forward. So I first want to introduce Dr. Carl Hosker, who is a senior fellow with the World Resources Institute. Carl is a senior fellow in WRI's Global Climate Program, where he is working on all sorts of domestic climate mitigation scenarios, and uh, as well as looking at the social cost of carbon, and also the very important issue of energy access. Carl brings decades of experience to his energy and climate work. Uh, he has uh, been involved in both the legislative and executive branches. He's also been in the private sector in terms of research institutes, as well as with NGOs. Um, he previously had served as vice president at ICF International and the Deputy Director of the Center for Climate Strategies and a Deputy Assistant Administrator in EPA's Policy Office and in um, the Clinton Administration. And of course, I first ran across Carl when he was the Chief Economist for the Senate's Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Uh, Dr. Noah Kaufman is a climate economist also with WRI, and he is in the Climate Initiative uh, he's an economist for the Climate Initiative in the Global Climate Program, uh, working on the economic impacts of climate change, where he too is focusing on carbon pricing, uh, all sorts of other market-based solutions, how they might work together. And he previously was the Deputy Associate Director of Energy and Climate Change at the White House Council on Environmental Quality, CEQ, where he was intimately involved in the production of this report that we're going to hear about in terms of the U.S. mid-century strategy for decarbonization. So Carl and Noah, the podium is yours. Thank you, Carol, and thank you everyone for coming out today. Uh, the, uh, especially, I'm, I'm glad we have this audience to, to pay attention to the long run uh, aspects of this issue. Uh, so the, the 800 pound gorilla in the room is what's going to happen in the next four years. It's hard to say exactly what's going to happen. I can say one thing, the science will not change. This problem is not going to go away no matter what happens uh, over the next four years. Uh, so uh, looking toward where the country needs to go in the long run, uh, I'm going to cover the, this new report by the Risky Business Project called From Risk to Return. I'll touch on the goals of the project. The analytic approach we took uh, was called the three pillars of long-run decarbonization. Uh, the four different pathways we looked at to get there. Uh, summarize the key report findings and some implementation challenges, and also touch on the policy recommendations, both for government uh, and for the private sector. Uh, I should mention I'm going to go very fast in, in, my, in my 20 minutes today before Noah takes over and then we have some questions. We have the full 70-page report up on the web, but also a real wealth of other interactive web features that lets you do deep dives uh, into the modeling, and the analysis, uh, and the conclusions. So first, 
What is, uh, what is, where did this report come from? Uh, many of you probably know about the Risky Business Project, uh, started, I believe, in 2013 uh, by Tom Steyer, Michael Bloomberg, and Hank Paulson. They put out a report in 2014 called Risky Business, which was the most detailed, quantified look at the impacts of climate change that were going to be experienced by the United States if we keep on our present trajectory. They looked at the physical impacts. They did the most uh, careful monetization of those impacts as well. Now, in 26, late in 2016, uh, they, we completed uh, a report looking at the mitigation side. What do we need to do to address these risks? How can we transition the US economy to a low carbon, deep decarbonized economy? And very happy that they engaged World Resources Institute to lead this project. Uh, and uh, we uh, were very happy to help uh, disseminate the, the results. Uh, as probably most of you know in this, in this room, to seriously address climate change, you need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions worldwide by 80% or more. And so we looked at a scenario of where the US would reduce emissions by uh, 80%. Our report just looked at carbon dioxide emissions from the energy sector. It's obviously a broader task to tackle all greenhouse gases, and you're going to hear from NOAA later how the US government report looked across all gases. But the Risky Business Report looked at just how do we reduce 80% of uh, CO2 emissions from the energy sector. Um, we asked, uh, can we do this technologically? Is it economically feasible? Is it manageable to do that between now and 2050? And I have to say the, the answer was very positive, that this is well within our grasp, although, yes, there are implementation challenges to getting there, and we'll discuss those uh, toward the end. Oops. The analytic approach we took was to use something called the Pathways Model, which is a very detailed stock accounting and technology adoption model uh, developed by a company called E3 out in San Francisco. It was also used a couple years ago in what's called the Deep Decarbonization Pathways Project, uh, a consortium of, of institutes that looked at about 15 different countries and the paths they could take to a low-carbon economy. Uh, our, our modeling used as a base case, the 2015 reference case uh, from EIA's annual outlook, annual energy outlook. We put together a total of four different pathways that could get us to that 80% reduction, uh, which was a very important point that there's no single path or single silver bullet that solves this problem, but there are multiple pathways uh, we can take. Um, and the model also has a deep richness not only in technologies and end use, but can also look at nine different census regions in the U.S. to get a feel for how this could play out across different regions and their, and their uh, uh, energy bases. Uh, beyond the modeling using pathways, we also looked at uh, a series of these uh, in-depth discussion of implementation issues, uh, which builds on previous, work, previous studies in this area. We also ex explored in a case study the potential impact of uh, the growth of autonomous vehicles. Uh, which seems to be really taking off. What are the implications for climate? What are the implications for the total cost of, of the transportation sector and delivering the mobility uh, that uh, Americans want? And finally, we added some case studies on uh, some of the early steps toward the low energy uh, uh, economy. And again, you'll, you'll find these on the website. I think uh, you'll find they are very rich in detail. 
So let me turn next to what we call the three pillars of decarbonizing an economy. These are true for our report. You'll see that they're true for NOAA's report and uh, virtually all the studies uh, in, this, in this area. What do you need to do to squeeze down carbon emissions? There is a laser pointer. The first pillar is that you need to switch as many possible end uses from the combustion of fossil fuels to the use of electricity or to the use of fuels generated by electricity, such as hydrogen. You can produce hydrogen using electricity or synthetic methane. Uh, the second pillar is if you're going to produce all that electricity and back up fossil fuels, of course, you'd have to decarbonize the generation of that electricity, turning to low or zero sources. And we have many to choose from. We have nuclear power. We have fossil, fossil power with carbon capture and sequestration. And then we have uh, a plethora of renewable energy technologies from wind to solar, to solar thermal to geothermal uh, and hydro, etc. The third pillar is whatever you do, you need to be as energy efficient across all of these uh, applications as possible. And so when we ran our model and applied these three pillars, we were, we were able to take the uh, current like, total energy use represented by electricity and take it from about 23% to more than doubling it to 51% of total end use energy delivered by electricity, reducing the fossil fuel combustion. By switching out of carbon intensive sources, we were able to dramatically drop the carbon intensity of generating electricity from over 500 kilograms per uh, kilograms of CO2 per megawatt hour currently to down to about two kilograms. And finally, on the, electric, on the energy efficiency front, we could we model pathways where we could go from using about 3.4 megajoules of energy per dollar of GDP and cut that by two thirds down to about one megajoule. So those are kind of the, some of the big metrics on on, uh, uh, on what the model was able to show if you adopt if we changed our technologies and our fuel mix. So what does that do to primary energy use when you make those kinds of changes? In this chart, uh, we show where we are now in 2015 on fossil use, non-fossil use, and the use of hydrogen and synthetic gas. And then the second bar is, is where we could be in 2050 under one of our pathways called the mixed resources pathway. And not surprisingly, right now, uh, our, our total ener primary energy use is dominated by coal, natural gas, um, and oil. And then with some contributions from uh, biofuels, this is a form of ethanol, largely nuclear, and we see some wind and solar coming in. Well, when we apply the three pillars and back out uh, a lot of fossil fuel use from, from various end uses, uh, we can shrink coal use down to a very tiny sliver of what it is currently. We shrink oil use down dramatically because of switching over to electricity or um, hydrogen to, for, in the transport sector. And then there's still a fairly big uh, use of natural gas in the power sector uh, with carbon capture and also in certain industrial sources that cannot be switched uh, to electricity. Over on the non-fossil fuel energy side, uh, we see uh, increases in the use of nuclear, we see increases in the use of wind, solar, 
biomass, but here's switching out of ethanol uh, into biodiesel, biogas, uh, and uh, more environmentally friendly uh, uh, sources that, that uh, complete as little as possible with uh, food production. So, and the other interesting to note here is that um, in 2015, we used a little bit over 90 quads, quadrillion BTU of energy, and the, by being energy efficient, we can shrink that to about 80 quads in 2050. Although the reference case had 90 quads and growing, we were able to dramatically bring the total primary energy use down from where it would otherwise go in 2050, with population growth and uh, economic growth, you know, assumed at uh, 2%, 2%, roughly 2% per year. So that's kind of the big picture of what happens uh, to your big primary energy sources. Let me turn now to the description of the four pathways we modeled and, uh, and some of the other assumptions. Um, we, because there's a range of uh, low carbon, zero carbon electricity sources and a range of transportation options, we played with a number of different pathways. In the electricity sector, just starting uh, below, uh, we had one scenario in which we had relatively high use of CCS, both on some coal plants and gas plants. We had a relatively high nuclear pathway, uh, a path that relied very heavily on renewables, and then what we call the mixed resources pathway, which was the, sort of the most balanced blend uh, of those. And the, uh, the interesting thing is, these weren't, you'll see in a moment when we look at the power sector, these weren't dramatically different cases, but just mi mixing a little bit, there's uh, a strong element of renewables in all cases, and there's uh, either maintaining or expanding the nuclear fleet uh, in, across all cases as well. On the transportation side, we looked at a pathway where you use a lot of uh, electric vehicles, uh, recharged a lot by renewable sources. We also looked at a scenario that used very heavy use of hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, where the hydrogen was produced by, uh, by nuclear plants, running you know, pretty much 90, 90% capacity factor, and using uh, the electricity that was not used during the day uh, to produce hydrogen at uh, non-peak times. So we combine, we, we combine those into four pathways. Under all these pathways, this transition requires some capital investment up front, some significant capital investment. And over time, that generates the carbon reductions. And of course, it also generates the fuel savings as you back out the combustion of fossil fuels. Uh, we also, in this model, we assumed a natural turnover of capital stock. We didn't retire capital stock early. And that helps on the cost front. We call this seize every opportunity to move to more efficient, low carbon technology at the end of the useful life of, say, keep pushing the wrong button, uh, hot water heaters have a life of about 10 years. Those can turn over three or four times between now and 2050. Space heaters have a little longer life. Vehicles have a life of 15 to 20 years, typically. And so in the model, we didn't suddenly convert to all electric vehicles. We looked at that we did a natural turnover as existing vehicles reached the end of their useful life. Similarly with boilers and power plants, boilers had a life of maybe 25 years. A natural gas combined cycle plant has a life of maybe 30 years. Coal nuclear plants last even longer. 
We didn't retire any plants or boilers immediately. We waited for the natural uh, end of their lives before the model then switched to the new technology. Residential buildings um, have a long lifetime, 50, 100 years. There, we didn't tear any building down in, in the simulation model uh, exercise. Instead, we retrofitted electric water leads. We retrofitted uh, heat pump uh, HVAC systems. We tightened up building shells, but we, we didn't replace uh, buildings. What that means is you keep your costs down. Of course, the flip side of that is your emission reductions will come in more gradually than if you had accelerated stock turnover. That's just a pure trade-off in this type of uh, exercise. So now, let me turn to what might this cost? The primary perspective we took a look at costs is what are the investment needs of making this transition? What are the investment needs of doing a significant substitution of capital and labor for fossil fuel combustion? And this, this slide summarizes sort of a very, very top-level number. The uh, above, above the zero line here are billions of dollars, large, almost all of investment in clean energy technologies. Also a little bit of use of uh, biofuels, clean fuels, mostly capital investment. Below the line are your fuel savings, backing out oil, coal, uh, and in some years backing out natural gas. The, uh, and then we present decadal averages. What does this cost largely in the 2020s? What are we looking at? 2030s, 2040s. So the interesting point brought on the modeling is that as we get going in, in the 2020s, it would, it would cost about $215 billion of clean energy investments per year. And then we'd have gradual fuel savings start to accumulate uh, along the line of about $65 billion a year. We move into the 2030s, we're up at about $400 billion a year. 2040s, maybe $360 billion a year in clean energy investments. And here when the payoffs really start to come through, uh, you get up to uh, $370 billion of fuel savings on average in the 2030s, and approaching $700 billion of fuel savings per year in the 2040s. So the question, of course, is, these investment numbers, are they, are they big? Are they manageable? Are they, uh, do they tank the economy? Uh, important uh, criterion to apply to that is how does, this, how does this compare to the total investment in the economy? Right now we have about an $18 trillion economy which we expect to gradually grow out to 2050. The portion of investment currently in our economy is about $3 trillion. And so when we think of a $200 billion uh, increase in investment, when we're already spending nearly $3 trillion, it's a couple percent increase in uh, the total investment. But even more importantly, let's look at the total economy. Investment in the total economy as a percentage of GDP has ranges from about 15 to 20% historically. It varies up and down years to years depending on economic conditions. So if you boost clean energy investment upwards by $200 billion, uh, $300, $400 billion, per year, you're boosting your percentage of the economy devoted to investment from 18 to 19, 19 to 20 percent. This should be manageable within a, an economy that's already $18 trillion and projected to grow under conservative assumptions to $40 trillion 
by 2050. Another perspective on investment is to think of the other surges that we've experienced in investment in different sectors. We've had a surge in investment in unconventional oil and gas production in recent years. It surged up well over 100 billion uh, in, in individual years. We had a big surge of telecom investment uh, in the late 90s, about $700 billion concentrated in uh, five, or, five or six years. And even now, we average over $350 billion a year investing in computers, uh, peripherals, software, etc. The whole IT component of the economy uh, of investment is about $350 billion per year. So those are good miles, you know, good uh, uh, yardsticks of comparison to think about can the economy uh, absorb this. I'm not going to take you to a very complex chart that's sort of a granular version of those decadal averages that I just talked about. Uh, we have, uh, again, billions of dollars spent on the y-axis and individual years on the x-axis. And what we see, again, above the zero line is your various investments in renewable power plants, nuclear power plants, fossil plants with CCS, biofuels, more efficient vehicles, synthetic fuels, uh, growing uh, up into the $300, $400 billion range in the 20, 30s, 2040s. What we see below the zero axis is, of course, the fuel savings. In the, the kind of brownish color, mostly petroleum uh, products saved, some coal saved, and savings in a few conventional power plant capital, capital costs. And the black line is the net. Just on the simple dollars in, dollars out, no net present value, no annualization, globalization, or any manipulation of those numbers, what, are we, what would we spend in an individual year on capital costs? What do we save in fuel? As you can see, it peaks out around $200 billion, $250 billion in the early 2030s. And then we get a very positive cash flow uh, in, in the out years. Um, the, uh, another perspective on this, on, this, on these annual uh, costs, is to, to take the capital costs and annualize them, to spread them out over the life of the asset using what's called a capital recovery factor. And this would this mimics a little bit more how uh, certainly the, the flow of uh, investment funds back to bondholders and equity holders over time rather than just the straight dollars out the door to build a wind turbine or to build a nuclear plant. When you annualize those costs and spread them over the life of these capital assets, you get smoother curves, of course. Again, here's all your uh, clean energy investments. Uh, uh, gra gradually rising as, as capital stock turns over, and then your fuel cost savings looking very much like the previous chart because these aren't capital costs, these are just pure savings flowing every year. And when you look at the net of those, again, it peaks about $300 billion per year in the mid-2030s, and that actually decreases to pretty much zero net cost by, by 2050. So here again, as, as your economy grows from 18 trillion to 20, 30 trillion, up to 40 trillion dollars a year. Can the economy absorb some added energy system costs of two or 300 billion dollars a year uh, as a way to address this externality? Uh, I think the answer is yes. The, the pathways model is not a macroeconomic model that specifically projects GDP. It just projects the change in the cost 
of the energy system. However, in, in the literature, there's an interesting study that also takes the pathways model output in similar scenarios and runs it through a macroeconomic model called the REMI model. And this study was done in late uh, 2015, looking at a similar deep decarbonization study. And they found that on the employment front, not surprisingly, when you substitute capital and labor for fossil fuel, you generate a lot of construction jobs, uh, with the model projecting uh, up to 800,000 uh, construction jobs by 2050. Uh, the flip side, of course, if you're going to phase out fossil fuels, yes, there are losses in the coal and oil and gas sector, uh, with projections for those losses to reach about 270,000 by 2050. Uh, and I should emphasize right now that, that this study, and almost anyone who looks in this area, uh, has the policy recommendation of doing transition assistance to communities that are affected by the, uh, the transition away from fossil fuels. Overall, looking across all sectors, uh, this, uh, this study by ICF projected an additional 1 million jobs by 2050 and a small bump up in overall GDP, which again makes intuitive sense. You're importing a lot less oil from abroad. You're keeping that money flowing inside the domestic economy. You're substituting capital and labor for those inputs. Uh, this, uh, this makes uh, intuitive sense. I'm going to take a quick look at details in the power and transportation sector. Uh, and uh, what this graph shows is a reference projection for 2050, how we would have a mixture of oil and uh, gas and coal, and nuclear and renewables by then under the business as usual, and what our power generation mix could look like under the four scenarios of mixed, high renewables, high nuclear, and high CCS. And what you, what you see here is that in the blue, you have onshore and offshore wind expanding moderately here, expanding very aggressively in the high renewable scenario, also moderately in, the, in these others. Uh, distributed solar and utility scale solar in red and yellow, expanding across all. Uh, and then the role of nuclear plants uh, expanding in the mixed resource scenario, keeping pretty much the same as reference case, expanding a lot here. All of this done in ways that meet load reliably, balance the system, retain some uh, use of natural gas for load balancing. Um, and the other interesting thing to note here is, of course, as you electrify the economy, you go from reference case up to higher levels of generation. That's the kind of, that is the effect of electrifying as many end uses as possible. Taking a look at the transport sector, uh, with a, a similar kind of uh, graphic display, we have reference case on the left and then the four pathways. The first thing we notice here is one of other pillars of low carbon economy. We can take transportation use uh, from a reference case level of about 27 quad, quads of energy down to a level below 15 by having much more efficient vehicles. And then with that lower transportation energy demand, we can use mixtures of hydrogen in the dark blue, or electricity in red, uh, renewable diesel, uh, and some residual fossil fuel use, particularly in aviation. We haven't found out how to fly a plane with batteries yet. Uh, also some residual use in, in heavy duty transport. But uh, 
we, we explored different combinations of, uh, of those three low-carbon fuels or zero-carbon fuels, electricity, hydrogen, and uh, biomass-derived fuels to, to, get, to deliver the same mobility uh, as would otherwise uh, be delivered in 2050 to a, to a growing population. So the modeling shows that this is technologically feasible, it's economically feasible within, uh, within our economy, but there are still implementation challenges that, that need to be overcome. Uh, the first one, not surprisingly, is that with the electrification of the economy and that those, those higher levels of electric generation, you need to build power plants. You need to ramp up the rate of construction of power plants, in some cases two to four times what we've seen historically. That's a challenge. Uh, combined with that, you also have to expand the transportation and distribution system. Uh, and again, there's both for plants and for wires. Sometimes there's siting problems, there's NIMBY problems, there's cross-state jurisdictional issues. Uh, this needs political will to overcome, but it, it's doable. The other thing, if we shift in a major way to electric vehicles, we have to look at uh, other physical infrastructure changes, how we build out, how we make the transition, and do we use fast chargers? Are they at home? Are they in the workplace? Uh, do we do battery swapping? All that is uh, needs to be thought through in terms of ramping up the use of electric vehicles. Finally, uh, we conclude that utility business models need to change to be able to integrate higher levels of renewables, which does occur across all the pathways, and also reflecting the fact that the cost of those sources have dropped dramatically uh, in the last five to eight years. Uh, so, and we already see the, the work on those new utility business models going on in various states. So very, very quickly, I just want to touch on the, the policy recommendations that came out of Risky Business. First of all, these are very general. This is basically a modeling exercise to show technical and economic feasibility. You won't find a cookbook of detailed policy recommendations here. But the co-chairs of the project uh, did endorse the notion that a key policy is to put a price on carbon in some, in some way or other, through taxation, through cap and trade, Somehow the economy needs that, that signal that, this, uh, that carbon emissions have a damaging effect uh, on, on the globe. Second, almost a no-brainer, we need to eliminate subsidization of fossil fuels. Uh, we need uh, good R&D policies to continue to bring out new technology uh, from, from lab to demonstration to commercial deployment. And very importantly, we also need to help the workers and the communities that are negatively impacted by a phase down of fossil fuels. They also had specific recommendations to the business community. Uh, even now, you can internalize a, a cost of carbon in your business planning investment. Uh, you need to look at climate risks uh, as you look at infrastructure building, and you need to disclose the risks your company faces. So uh, look forward to questions and answers. All of this is available at riskybusiness.org both the original 2014 report on impacts and the new report on, uh, on uh, low-carbon pathways. So with that, I'll turn it over to Noah. Great. Thanks, Carl. Great. Thank you all for coming. Thank you to ESI and the Risky Business Project for uh, organizing this, and uh, it's just an honor to be here talking to you. 
Um, I'm going to talk about national mid-century strategies, uh, with a specific focus on the United States mid-century strategy for deep decarbonization uh, that I worked on last year. Uh, the parts of the Paris Climate Agreement uh, that virtually everyone knows about are, number one, the emissions targets to 2025 and 2030, and number two, the long-term global temperature goals. Right, we're going to keep global warming uh, constrained to well below 2 degrees Celsius. Uh, lesser known uh, in the agreement is the bridge between these two elements, uh, and that is the invitation to countries uh, to develop mid-century, long-term, low greenhouse gas emission strategies. Uh, fortunately, countries have begun to take uh, the Paris Agreement up on this invitation. Uh, last year, we worked very closely alongside our neighbors in Canada and in Mexico, uh, both in developing the strategies uh, and then also releasing them together jointly uh, at the COP in Marrakesh in November. Uh, Germany and France have also released their mid-century strategies, uh, and other countries, uh, many other countries, have committed to do so as well. Uh, importantly, China and India, uh, both in joint statements of the United States last year, have announced their intention to move forward with century strategies. So the U.S. strategy uh, was kicked off by President Obama uh, in March of last year. Uh, that uh, started a true interagency effort uh, that included input by EPA, by DOE, uh, by USDA, uh, also by our national labs, uh, which ran a model called uh, the GCAM model, uh, which was the source of some of the figures I'm going to show you later on. It's a comprehensive economy-wide model. Uh, many of my colleagues at the White House uh, worked on this project as well, uh, just specifically Rick Duke, Emily McGlynn, Pete Hansel uh, could all give this presentation better than I could. So as you can see here, uh, the mid-century strategy uh, involves uh, emissions pathways. Uh, these are strategies looking at how to not only achieve deep decarbonization, uh, but to do so while meeting all of the growing demands on the U.S. energy system and lands, uh, while also ensuring a thriving economy for all Americans. We developed seven different pathways to 2050. Uh, in all of them, uh, we looked at emissions, uh, total greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, of 80% or more below 2005 levels. In our judgment, this is the range that the United States needs to be in to fulfill its commitment under Paris. So this was never intended to be a policy roadmap uh, for the next administration. Uh, it wasn't written that way. Uh, of course, we do hope that as policymakers consider different policies uh, in these sectors in the year to come, uh, we hope the information we developed will be useful, uh, both at the national level and at the subnational level, uh, and we hope it will have a long shelf life, uh, given that we are taking a very long-term perspective here. So we got a lot of different press uh, when our report was released in November. Uh, there was one thing that I, I saw virtually every article mention, uh, and that is that our report is long. Uh, so I won't have time to go through the whole thing today or even give you a full overview of it. Uh, what I'll do instead 
is give you what I think are five important takeaways uh, that, that uh, you'll find in ours and other mid-century strategies, um, answer any questions you have, uh, and then hopefully convince a few of you to dig into our lengthy report. So I've listed the takeaways up on the screen here. Uh, I'll go through them one by one in a little detail. So uh, the takeaway number one is that our current global emissions trajectory uh, is not sufficient to achieve the long-term goals of the Paris Agreement. Uh, we need quite a bit more ambition. Uh, I think this fact is well known. Uh, I'm not sure it's known just how true it is. Uh, so I'm going to show you a figure here, uh, one of many I'll show from the report itself. As you can see, these are global greenhouse gas emissions rising over time as we go through history. Uh, here's where they may have been headed. Uh, this dashed line here is a successful outcome uh, up to 2030 under the Paris Agreement, that is countries achieving their nationally determined contributions. Uh, and then these colorful lines heading towards zero, uh, that's where we need to go uh, in order to achieve the goal of well below 2 degrees Celsius. Uh, so this makes, I think this shows fairly starkly uh, that not only do we need more ambition uh, in our policies and technologies, uh, we really need it before 2030. Uh, so we don't have to confront this scary kink right here. Takeaway number two, uh, a lot of us, me included, uh, like to focus on the energy sector, uh, but when you're developing long-term strategies, uh, it is important to have an economy-wide uh, perspective uh, and plan uh, for integrated economy-wide action to reduce emissions. Um, this figure will help me illustrate that point. Uh, these are emissions in the United States alone, total greenhouse gas emissions, historical on the left here, and three of our seven pathways uh, for 2050 uh, show three different uh, ways to get there, all achieving 80% reductions by 2050. Uh, the blue bars here, that's CO2 emissions. Uh, that's primarily energy, and that is the bulk of our emissions today. Uh, and it is the major transformation that you can see uh, between today and 2050. We talk about very similar pillars uh, in terms of the energy sector that Carl mentioned in his report. Number one, energy efficiency. Number two, decarbonizing the electricity sector. Uh, and number three, switching to lower carbon sources uh, in other energy sectors. But as you can see from this figure, uh, CO2 is not the whole story. Uh, you also have in pink here uh, other greenhouse gases. That includes methane, that includes nitrous oxide, HF HFCs as well. Um, and below zero here, you have our land carbon sink. So that's our forests, our soil uh, that sequester carbon. Uh, so these are not an insignificant part of the story today. And if you look out towards 2050, you can see they become an increasingly important uh, part of the GHG story, uh, at least percentage-wise, over time. It's also important to note that while we're showing them staying relatively constant here, both in terms of non-CO2 emissions and the sink. Um, in fact, left to their own de devices, non-CO2 emissions will rise quite a bit 
the sink is likely to shrink quite a bit. Uh, so considerable action and technological advancement uh, will, be, will be needed uh, just to keep these as they are. Otherwise, what that means is we'll need quite a bit more action uh, out of the energy sector uh, to get to any given target. What's not shown on the screen here uh, are the important uh, interactions among the different sectors uh, that you can only capture with comprehensive economy-wide analysis. Uh, one important example is the role of biomass. Uh, so in the report, we talk about how to increase biomass production in our country uh, about two to three times today's level. Uh, it's an important, uh, it's an important uh, factor in terms of low carbon um, energy sources. Uh, however, uh, at least two things have to be true for that to be the case. Number one, you have to ensure that it's actually a low carbon energy source in terms of carbon accounting. Uh, and number two, uh, you have to develop the biomass in ways that don't disrupt the supply of food or markets for food uh, in our country. Uh, so do that if you do it smartly, but it certainly won't happen by itself. Okay, number three, I'm almost halfway there. Uh, we don't do these strategies with the idea that 30 or 40 years from now we're still going to be following uh, the same template. Uh, I think that would be a little delusional. Things change all the time. Uh, we do them because there are fundamental differences between actions in the near term, uh, if we have a 2050 target in mind, versus actions in the near term if we're looking to the short term, so say 2025. Uh, and climate change, of course, is a long-term problem. So I could give examples in almost any sector. Um, I'll just mention two. Uh, first of all, light-duty vehicles, cars, uh, this slide shows you distance traveled for light-duty vehicles, uh, and it shows that in 2005, uh, virtually all of, those, of, of the distance traveled was in gasoline or diesel vehicles. Uh, and it shows two pathways out to 2050. In both of these pathways, although they differ quite a bit, we have considerable penetration of alternative fuel vehicles, somewhere between one-third and two-thirds. Uh, of the vehicles, uh, vehicle miles travel. Now to get to our targets in 2025, you really don't have to do too much in terms of the electric vehicle penetration. Um, in fact, even if you did, it wouldn't lead to that many emissions reductions because we haven't decarbonized the electricity system yet. Um, however, if you're going to get here in 2050, you sure as heck better start now because, as Carl mentioned, you have slow turnover uh, in terms of the stock of cars, uh, you have infrastructure you need to build, uh, and we need the cost reductions that only come with action over time. Second example I'll give is the electricity sector. So this chart here uh, shows electric capacity additions over time, so this isn't electricity use, uh, it's basically like the amount of power plants that we have to build every year. Um, and Sorry in the back if you probably can't read the key, but I'll explain what's important about this. Um, on the left, you have historical capacity additions. This brown blob here is all of the natural gas that we've built in the last couple decades. To get to our 2025 target, we could do more of the same. We could keep building natural gas plants, replace coal uh, electricity use, um, and reduce our emissions uh, 
quite a bit. What this shows, and what all of our scenarios show, is that if you have a 2050 outlook, you still build maybe a little bit of natural gas, this brown on the bottom, uh, but what you do a lot more of is build wind and solar, which are this white bars and the, and the blue bar here. Uh, we're already building a lot of wind and solar. Actually, it's, it's pretty remarkable. If you look at 2015 or 2016 combined, they're already outpacing uh, new natural gas. Uh, but you can see the pace needs to ramp up uh, even further to get on the pace we need to be. Uh, it also shows that we need to start building advanced nuclear technologies uh, and other technologies like uh, fossil fuel with carbon capture and storage, uh, and potentially even uh, biomass with carbon capture and storage for electricity as well. Uh, if those technologies are going to be available uh, by mid-century, again, uh, we really need to start now uh, to bring costs down, uh, improve social acceptance, uh, and so on. I think that's actually a good segue into my fourth takeaway. I haven't told you so far uh, that I am an economist. Uh, I try to hide that from people so maybe they'll like me in the beginning. Uh, but as an economist, I am professionally obligated to make this next point about economic outcomes of a low-carbon pathway, uh, and that is centerpiece of our efforts to get there, uh, if we want a cost-effective trajectory, uh, should be outcome-based policies uh, and broad support for um, different technologies, different low-carbon technologies. Uh, so outcome-based policies, by that I mean something like the price on carbon that does not uh, dictate where and when particular low-carbon technologies uh, should be deployed. I'll give you one example of this uh, that, again, is in the electricity sector. Uh, this is electricity generation, so actually the electricity that is used uh, in 2050 for four different pathways in the report. And again, I apologize if you can't read the key, uh, but what's important about this picture, uh, first of all, notice the electricity system is increasing quite a bit because we're electrifying a lot of the energy uses. Um, secondly, very little fossil fuels are left in the system in 2050, just a little bit of natural gas, uh, but virtually the whole electricity system is carbon-free at that point. And then the last thing, even though we show four very different pathways here, uh, all of them you'll see are very colorful. Uh, we are using geothermal, solar, wind, nuclear, hydro, biomass, and coal and gas with CCS. Um, some more in some scenarios and some less uh, in, in some scenarios. Um, to, we don't know exactly which ones, which of these technologies are going to be available 20 or 30 years from now. We don't know how much they're going to cost. Uh, but if we have something like a carbon price uh, and if we support the emergence of these technologies um, into the market over time, we don't need to know which are going to be available and how much they're going to cost uh, to attain a cost-effective outcome. Uh, on the other hand, if we move forward only with a subset of technologies, we risk locking ourselves into higher cost pathways over time. Last point I was going to make here is about the virtuous cycle of ambition and innovation. All of the other figures that I've shown you today are just straight out of the 
uh, report itself. This figure here um, I made specifically for this occasion. Uh, so you can hold your applause until the end. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that the more we act on climate, the more we're going to drive down the costs of low carbon solutions. And that in itself will enable more action in years to come. So that's what we mean by the virtuous cycle. Uh, perhaps the best example of this in recent years uh, is the progress in solar energy. So this chart shows uh, on the bars here the cost of building solar plants in the last six or seven years. Remarkable progress. Costs have come down something like 10 to 15% every year. Uh, and then you can see uh, the line here is the increase in capacity over time, which has shot up in recent years. These go together. The more we build, the more costs come down. Uh, you could show the same thing for something like electric vehicle batteries. Um, the point is that between now and five and six years ago, um, a totally different uh, degree of decarbonization is achievable and cost-effective. Um, and if we keep pushing forward, we should fully expect this to continue to be true five and ten years from now. Uh, so I don't think we should confuse what it is we can model uh, with, with what is achievable over time. Uh, in our judgment, we expect that if we do keep pushing forward, uh, more ambition and more rapid pace of reductions uh, would become available um, as the years go by. So that's it. Those are my five takeaways. Uh, the last thing I wanted to mention is that, uh, so Carl and I are both at the World Resources Institute now. Uh, we are continuing to do, to do work on this topic of long-term strategies. Uh, we'll be developing our own WRI, gui WRI guidance for countries as they develop long-term strategies prior to 2020. Uh, it'd be great to talk to any of you uh, about that work uh, or our reports, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thanks a lot. Great. Thanks, Noah. Uh, so thank you both, Noah and Carl, for walking us through these reports. And I must say, with regard to your uh, point about the virtuous cycle and what we've seen, for example, with regard to solar and, and also wind, uh, I would, just in terms of furthering that uh, point of context, I would refer you back to a briefing that we did last month where uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance provided information just about looking at the investment that had gone into clean energy in the course of the last year and looking at those trends. And they are very, uh, they are very, very robust, pretty startling in terms of how dynamic this whole universe is in terms of looking at investment, how quickly things can be absorbed, as Carl was also talking about, the size of investment needed, but also what could be absorbed quite readily into the economy. So let's open it up for your discussion, your your comments, your questions, um, while we have Noah and Carl with us. Any, any questions, any comments? Microphone. Go ahead. Microphone. Okay, up here. Great, thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Emily Shore and I'm with the Brattle Group. I have a question about your pathways model scenarios. I'm curious if you did a high EE or energy efficiency scenario uh, or why you didn't. And I guess what 
high EE alone would get us to, maybe not 80% reductions, but what level by 2050? Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, we did not uh, significantly vary the, the levels of energy efficiency investments in buildings and cars and, and industry very much. It was really, as I described, the variation in electricity generation mix and then transportation fuels mix. But we were fairly aggressive on, on energy efficiency uh, investments across the economy. But one, one, could, con one could construct even more, more aggressive stars as possible. Um, and actually, Noah, could you talk about what was the role of energy efficiency in terms of how you looked, how your study looked at this? Sure. Well, like Carl's, all of our scenarios um, involved pushing on energy efficiency uh, quite a bit because um, it is such a cost-effective option across sectors. Um, we did have one scenario that we call our, our smart growth scenario uh, that looked at not only energy efficiency, but started to dive into um, how can we actually uh, turn economic development uh, into, or how can we make economic development more energy efficiency by smarter urban planning, uh, you know, smarter building uh, practices, et cetera. And that, and that scenario, I think, had about 10% lower energy use in 2050. Uh, than the others, but um, I, I think the shorter answer to your question is we really have no idea how far we can push it because we're looking at technologies uh, that are available today. Okay, uh, great. Other questions, comments? Uh, okay, here first and then in the back. <clears throat> Thanks so much. My name is Mike Italiano. I'm with the Capital Markets Partnership. Uh, this is a very important program, so thanks, Carol, for putting it on. Um, there's uh, three uh, key factors that support uh, your important assessment. One, um, there's um, investors with over $70 trillion in assets that want to buy clean financial products, clean energy financial products, which cause the uh, green bond market to grow to uh, about $93 billion in just four years. Uh, the bonds are selling out, you're getting cheaper capital, uh, more proceeds, higher valued bonds that are also less risky. Uh, the second is uh, Fitch uh, Ratings and Bloomberg recently announced um, a pending near-term oil, they call it an oil death spiral, whereby um, oil will start a permanent devaluation um, and reduced uh, revenue generation um, if clean vehicle sales keep accelerating. And then the third is uh, there was an estimated uh, $100 trillion in U.S. climate resilience costs that were reported to uh, S&P, uh, the world's largest credit rating agency, uh, in a June 30th meeting um, a couple years ago, 2014, before um, investment banks and rating agencies. Um, and the costs were Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts were calculated at 5.3 trillion and 1.6 trillion, uh, respectively. Um, New York State's estimated about 10 trillion, which is driving climate litigation. My question is, um, has, has Worldwatch or any of its uh, partners um, focused or have any thoughts on how to more rapidly access the 70 trillion dollars that's available? 
in terms of the capital markets where there's a lot of capital. Well, we think, yeah, there's investors who have this money and they're ready to invest and, and you know, it's not being deployed fast right. enough. Right. Which is why you know the bonds are selling out. It would also apply to green stocks, but there's just not enough financial products available. I could take one one crack at that. Uh, certainly, in the in this risky business report, we did not we did not study methods for unlocking finance. Uh, however, uh, that is uh, a field that, that has been analyzed by, uh, by by various people, and there are financial innovations that can tap into greater investment for sure. There, the uh, the, the uh, uh, legal form of master limited partnerships uh, could be expanded uh, beyond its current uses in a number of ways. I'm not a, I'm not an expert in, in finance, so uh, I, I can't say much more than that. The other thing, I'm not I'm not sure if the numbers on economic damages that, that you cited, I'm not sure if they're consistent with the first risky business report assessment or not, uh, but certainly. The damages to the U.S. Uh, are going to be are going to be huge if we stay on our present course, and they will be much higher than the uh, than the costs of moving to a clean energy economy. The final the final thing I'll say about about fossil fuel prices, which you touched on, is it's it's actually very intriguing to think if the globe as a whole moves to the 80 percent or more reductions in greenhouse gases. That will be a backing out of fossil fuels worldwide, and demand will go down. And this will probably lead to a softening of uh, uh, fossil fuel prices globally and in the U.S. So it's an interesting policy challenge ahead. Uh, what is the policy framework that keeps us on that track, uh, even as fossil fuel prices soften as the more we succeed? It's an interesting dilemma. Uh, okay, let's go back. Thank you. The gentleman in the back. Uh, hi, uh, Mark Carr, uh, private citizen. Um, interesting analyses. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, I think that uh, Dr. Oscar. I'm sorry. Oscar. Um, I think you uh, identified the difficulty of permitting uh, for these construction programs you're talking about. I think you at least in this conversation, you underestimate the difficulty of permitting by, you could have spent your whole talk on that, because I think this stuff will never get permitted. And the second, to my friend in, in the dismal science there, uh, the thing that was so distressing about this presentation is that the, uh, and the gentleman brings up on markets, is that you have uh, technological innovation driven by policy and not by markets. And uh, I think that anytime you go at that approach, um, you're um, sacrificing the greatest driver, and at the same time, you're um, bringing in policy as a solution to um, market problems, basically. Or maybe problems in other areas, but policy versus everything else is a really unfortunate um, place to land. Um. Go ahead, Noah. Thanks for the question. Um, yeah, I would disagree with the characterization you made. Uh, we certainly think policy... Oh, dismal science or something else? No, no, that, that one's right. Uh, the characterization of um, the report as relying on policy alone. I think policy certainly has uh, a role to play in supporting innovation, uh, but concerted efforts uh, to uh, invest in innovation, both from the public and private sector, 
um, have just as important, if not more important, roles to play. I mean, we see innovation um, all the time in the world around us, and you know, we see a lot of energy innovation because uh, governments like the United States and others um, have made concerted efforts to invest in, uh, for example, solar energy uh, in recent years. So if I gave the impression that it was policy drivers alone uh, that were going to lead to this advancement, um, then, then I apologize. That's, that's not what I meant. Okay. Uh, and I guess I would just add that I think in most every kind of analysis that I've seen domestically and also uh, in terms of looking globally, that that businesses as well as governments have talked about the need for a mix of policy and um, you know, and, and business, that it's a combination of, of actions. Um, other questions? Over here? Just, could you wait for the microphone? Yeah. My name is Joel Klotz, and I'm a private citizen. Uh, two questions. One is, um, has the report that Dr. Krahaska, has it addressed um, the possibility of going, um, reducing nuclear while also reducing carbon, so that looking at how much storage, for example, it would take to have reliable power in a pretty much non-nuclear situation with just renewables, and is that even feasible? Is there enough, is there enough geography to have that much water um, batteries and so forth? That kind of question. Mm -hmm. So that's one question I have. And the other one is um, about mobilization of, of efforts to get something done about this in the Passion. Um, the idea is, I don't know if that was a question or a comment, but the idea of having communication to the whole populace in terms of, of like dashboards, so that we, just like we watch football games and get very excited about who's winning, we can sort of get excited about this and think, you know what, we made too much progress and, and the U.S. is ahead of China and, and we're, ahead, we're toward, towards the goal, but we're kind of on the first question, um, we, we did not specifically explore uh, reducing the nuclear contribution to the total generation mix and see what we would need in terms of, of load balancing. Rather, the, the four pathways uh, kept nuclear even uh, either at a sort of current level of output or increased in some ways. Uh, it's certainly true that if, if nuclear plants are, are retired and not, not replaced, the burden is going to go elsewhere, and you need to actually build a lot more capacity of renewables to replace every megawatt of nuclear because nuclear runs at 90 95% capacity factor, and renewables typically operate 25 30%. So it, it becomes a more, more daunting challenge. There are analysts who, uh, you know, certainly there are NREL studies let's say we can go 80% renewable and not run into reliability problems. Uh, There's some analysts that say we can go even higher, but I haven't personally done modeling that has pro that's given me a, a, a strong opinion on exactly how far you can go. Um, but certainly across both of these studies, uh, you saw that uh, nuclear remained uh, in the mix. Uh, as, as far as sort of consumer uh, citizen motivation, uh, I would certainly welcome uh, creative ways to get more people thinking about their their own carbon footprint and uh, what what they what they do as consumers, what they do as buyers, 
uh, to help because we certainly this this is a this is a big this is a big challenge. We need to uh, engage uh, both uh, consumers, citizens, as well as the business community. And I just add, just from the perspective of our study, uh, I'd say uh, I agree with Carl that it is probably feasible to go a lot more renewable, perhaps even 100% renewable in the in the energy system. Um, if you're cutting off the nuclear <laughs> the nuclear option, then uh, you you probably will have a more costly pathway. That doesn't mean as a society we might not decide to go down that direction. Um, but that is what our, our models tell us. Um, on your second point, I, I would watch that show. Um, I don't know what the ratings would be, but I think injuries would be lower than football. <laughs> and it would be concussion-free. Yeah. Um, okay, okay. Uh, question right here. Thank you. Hi, um, my name is Eileen. I'm a reporter with the Medill News Service. Um, I have two quite general questions, but... You know, under the political sentiment right now, the new administration apparently have no interest in clean energy. And you mentioned about, you know, how to increase investment. Can you be more specific about who should we talk to, private sector, um, public sectors? And a second question is, um, you know, um, how um, the low carbon future might require a change of mindset. Um, even compared to the Obama administration? Uh, sure, yeah, th thanks for the question. Um, so, I, I think it could certainly require, or, or the, the change of mindset might be helpful, for sure. Um, what our studies are useful in showing, I think, is that uh, we can do this without any radical changes. We do have uh, the technologies available uh, or, or nearly available today. Um, it might be easier and it might be more cost effective um, if, if we sort of move in a different direction and we could push on different level levers and we could try to reduce people's, uh, you know, people may decide to reduce their energy use in ways we didn't contemplate. Uh, but really we are showing uh, sort of the practicality uh, of getting to deep decarbonization, uh, even with current technologies and, and mindset. Uh, could you remind me what the first question was? To, to increase investment. Right, I mean, I think I, that, that's where I think but the, the, the government and the private sector have sort of a synergistic role to play. Uh, there, there's a very strong case for uh, action by businesses uh, and, and an economic case in general uh, as long as the world is moving forward, right? I think IEA predicted that there would be $7 trillion investments in renewables in the next couple decades, uh, given the Paris commitments. Uh, but of course that requires that uh, businesses are of the mindset that this is the way the world is going. Uh, so that's why I think it's important uh, that we're not complacent, complacent about this and we sort of keep our foot on the accelerator. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd just like to add to that by saying um, that there's going to continue to be momentum to make these investments uh, in the business community, particularly multinational companies that uh, are that, that need to uh, move ahead on clean energy across their supply chains, spanning uh, national borders. Certainly there's momentum in the electric utility industry. Uh, they, know, they need to plan long-term. They can't just plan for four years ahead for this administration. And there are, there are signs that, uh, that, that they are going to continue 
the path toward decarbonization. It's just the market forces of low natural gas prices and the tremendous decreases in wind and solar prices uh, that we've seen over the last couple of years. And then finally, there's state and local governments that are committed to, to stay the, the course. Uh, so all, all those forces are, are in play. And you know, one classic example is our, our new energy secretary, Rick Perry. He was governor of Texas, I think, for 14 years, 12 or 14 years. And he put in place a series of policies that allowed the phenomenal growth of wind power in Texas. And that is going to continue, and uh, states like Texas see the economic benefits. So we're going to see more of that. Uh, and Texas actually has greatly expanded on the solar side as well. Uh, so was there, did you have a question up here? I think she was okay, first. Okay, so just back there. Okay. Hi, my name is Megan Walsh, and uh, I'm with USDA, but I was with OMB up until January 6th for a detail working on um, standards and finance to support community resilience. Um, and I wanted to talk about your report in terms of where we are today and um, just sort of think about the idea that resilience is a sort of a broad um, categorization of this as well um, because even what Mike was saying about assets I mean if you start to look at financial risk um, of different types of energy sources and then that being applied to various investment um, companies that are net zero for example having a lower risk um, that kind of thing, as well as the health and safety factors of various forms of energy that a particular company is relying on for their production globally or in the U.S., etc. I feel like we could be moving in that direction um, with your report sort of combining the focus on carbon uh, reduction and sort of that would be a result of the market, as you know, Mike was describing. Um, and also that um, there are a number of programs in government already that provide funding for these sorts of activities. And at USDA Rural Development, for example, and there are a number of um, loan programs that support biomass, biofuel, uh, renewable energy in rural areas. Um, we've seen net zero um, hospital campuses, for example, uh, that are doing this without our funding even. Uh, so I, I think that there is a mix of both policy and business um, efforts already happening, and I just wanted to introduce myself and let you know that I'm back in my agency, and uh, if you ever want to reach out to USDA. So thanks. We, 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 we certainly will, and uh, WRI has a, a resilience uh, program. Uh, I'd like to connect you with, uh, with the woman who runs it. And I, I guess I would just also respond to your comments. Uh, I, I can think of sort of a, at least three, at least three forms of resilience that need to be sort of thought about. I think in three categories. One, one is is making a uh, both human in infrastructure and even sometimes natural infrastructure more resilient to climate change, and that's really kind of the front the front lines. And I think USDA is, is doing uh, work work there as are other agencies. Another form of risk that I think that I think you highlighted was uh, fi financial risk uh, of companies having stranded assets in the ground. There, there are companies that are going to have to devalue uh, stocks of oil, gas, or coal 
if, if this transition goes forward. They need to do things to, to manage that risk. And then uh, I, I think the, 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 third, the third kind of risk is, is sort of, a, I guess, maybe a financial stock risk of, of, a, of a company that's not in the fossil fuel business but is somehow otherwise exposed to what, hap what happens in climate policy or climate impacts, how does it affect their bottom line. So I think three, three different ones that, all, all, uh, that uh, people need to manage in different ways, and uh, it sounds like you're probably familiar with the first risky business report, which has tremendous relevance for that, that first kind of risk and then the resilience we need to build to deal with it. I just wanted to thank you for raising the resilience issue, uh, because uh, one of the things that ESI is doing is, is uh, putting together a whole series of briefings on building a more resilient and secure infrastructure. And that gets to some of the points that Carl and Noah raised with regard to thinking about what that means in terms of overall physical infrastructure costs for cities and local governments that they are looking at and how to really reduce their risk. And actually, one thing I just wanted to mention, too, that follows up on a comment that I think you had made, Carl, is that we were also struck, I, it was um, a couple months ago, that Moody's had announced that they were now uh, taking into their rating uh, uh, accounts uh, that climate as, as a risk factor uh, in terms of their uh, rating service. And I think that is another important sign of the times as we look at this very dynamic, quickly evolving world. Other last questions? Okay, here and then back here. Thank you. My name is Nora Dallin from Congressman Lou Correa's uh, office. And I was just wondering, you talked about local governments and state governments. I was wondering if you could provide some further examples of steps that those governments are taking to start implementing some of these uh, changes or initiatives. Uh, sure. I, I mean, I think probably the best example um, Sorry, did you say state or did you say local? Just local also. Local. Okay, I mean, I, I see what's happening in California is probably the best example. I mean, it's probably the most well-known too, uh, but they really have uh, put in place a comprehensive uh, set of policies with uh, a long-term vision um, that uh, I, I think, you know, you might disagree with exactly how they did it, but uh, I think it's an important template they've set uh, for the rest of the country. Uh, and then you have, uh, I think, an increasing number of, of uh, states and cities uh, that are moving forward, um, particularly with uh, wind and solar and energy efficiency, um, because uh, they see uh, the cost effectiveness and uh, you know, they see uh, the, the growth in jobs in uh, the solar and wind industry has just been um, you know, astronomic in recent years, and, and that's an important uh, issue for uh, for state and local politicians. So uh, I think it's going to be really important over the next few years to keep pushing forward at the state and local level uh, to make sure, uh, because if the federal government does not uh, continue to push forward, uh, you know we can we can certainly uh, survive um, a, a few years of. Uh, a lack of, of sort of similar federal action that we've had in recent years, uh, but it would help quite a bit if, if state and local governments took up the slack. 
I would just add to that on the lo even on the local front, uh, localities have a tremendous uh, uh, impact on kind of the, the shape and density and transportation options w within their cities. Uh, is single vehicle, you know, single occupant car the, the dominant form, or do you, you know, what kind of ride sharing options do you have? What kind of bus and mass transit options do you have? What kind of bicycle and pedestrian options do you have? All that will shape, of course, the demand for energy in that town as well as affect, uh, affect livability. Um, and also uh, local policy can be either friendly or unfriendly to distributed energy in various forms, whether it's micro-cogen plants or whether it's uh, rooftop solar. Uh, you can be uh, you know, friendly or unfriendly and that's, that's going to affect things at the local level. And you know, Noah cited some examples of, at the state level. Uh, we talked about you know, Texas. And I just want to take one second to ride my, my personal hobby horse, which one questioner echoed, is no matter what kind of fan of what energy source you are, uh, you are going to face obstacles to building anything these days. And I say that with all due respect to my friends in the environmental community, but sometimes if you want to site a solar plant, you've got problems. Somebody's going to fight you. You're going to want to build wind turbines on or offshore. Somebody's going to fight you because they don't like the view or because they don't want the transmission line that connect the wind to the grid. You want to build a nuclear plant, you got problems. You want to build a coal plant with CCS. There, there is such a, a uh, you know, such obstacles to build a natural gas pipeline, which you might need basically to keep the, your houses warm until we get something else, or you need a natural gas plant pipeline because you need a natural gas plant to generate when the wind stops blowing. You know, everything faces such opposition. I think as a country, we need to get together and find a way to choose which infrastructure, energy infrastructure uh, things we want and get them done. End of lecture, sorry. <laughs> and for whatever it's worth, we did have a briefing looking at, at grid modernization and transmission. Uh, issues uh, a couple weeks ago. So in terms of thinking about some of that, I would just call that to, to your attention as well. And we also have a briefing next Tuesday on the 14th on transportation and transit mm -hmm. infrastructure. So I think that would be just right for you. Mm -hmm. um, There's one more question. One more question? Yeah. There we go. Hi, I'm Ron Munson from the uh, Global CCS Institute. And uh, I was curious if uh, there was variability, cost variability across your four principal pathways that you presented earlier. And if there is, if you could discuss, you did a little bit of this earlier as regards to nuclear, but if you could discuss some of the factors that impact that cost variability across those pathways. Mm -hmm. in, the, uh, in the risky business uh, study, uh, we did not vary technology costs across the different pathways uh, I think the, the notion was the, the, the rates of deployment were, were not sufficiently different to affect the, the, the projected price of the technology. Rather, what we did for each technology was carefully look, look at the literature and look at and, and extract kind of like a mainstream projection of you know, what will CCS cost in 2030 on a coal plant, on a gas plant, what kind of, uh, and what kind of learning would take place between now and then. Same, same on, on nuclear plants. We didn't assume big price drops for, like, say, a small modular reactors or something, but we still were building 
full-size reactors and looked, and looked at prices coming down somewhat from here. On, on renewables, we had some s small further decreases in wind, figuring, uh, figuring it was a, you know, getting to be a mature technology. Still some steeper decreases in, in solar, figuring it is, is less mature. And again, all this based on you know, studies by, uh, by academics or NREL or you know, DOE projections on where we think prices might go uh, in the future with deployment. If I could just jump in, um, our study had two different uh, cost scenarios. Uh, both uh, were developed uh, on the energy side by the Department of Energy program offices that deal with the technologies. Uh, so in both cases, they considered uh, considerable uh, progress. Uh, our, our sort of standard scenarios looked at achieving the program goals uh, within the Department of Energy for, for each technology, and I think that includes uh, this, the various CCS uh, plants. Um, and then we also looked at one, we call it our Beyond 80 scenario, uh, where we asked the folks at DOE, what would happen if your funding uh, would considerably increase or, or there would be an opportunity to, to push even further uh, than your current programs imagine? Uh, and that's where our other uh, technological pathway uh, came from. I think in both cases, uh, this goes far beyond what you typically see out of the energy models. If you if you look at, for example, the Energy Information Administration puts out their annual energy outlook reports every year, um, these do not assume much other than sort of incremental progress in various technologies. So I think um, we end up with very different results uh, than that kind of model does. Uh, because we are imagining a world where we are moving forward and moving forward successfully on technologies like CCS. Any last questions? Okay, well, I want to thank Carl and Noah very, very much uh, for your presentations, and uh, please join me in thanking them.